Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Get Connected with Nina Del Rio, a weekly conversation about fitness, health, and happenings in our community on 106.7 Light FM. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on Get Connected. You got a big speech in your near future? A sales pitch or performance? How are your nerves? In his new book, Psyched Up, journalist Daniel McGinn dives into the latest psychological research, interviews athletes, soldiers, entertainers, and others to find out how they channel their nervousness into success. Daniel, thanks for joining us on Get Connected. Thank you. Daniel McGinn is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review. His writing has appeared in Wired, the Boston Globe, and Newsweek. So in this book, you look at pre-performance rituals, superstitions, pep talks, all sorts of ways that people prepare for their big moment. But it's not necessarily about calming ourselves. It's about channeling our excitement. What did you find? I think the key is to really find ways to reduce your anxiety, boost your confidence, and find your energy level at the right place for the activity you're doing. There's something really kind of sinister in a way about uh, performances in general. Even if you're an expert in your field, no matter how much effort we put in, we're judged by our results. You know, you're only as good as your last performance. And that probably figures into some of that anxiety we have. Yeah, one of the people I spoke with was a professor at Juilliard who was a a violin prodigy. And he actually stopped playing violin and became a psychology professor because he was fascinated with that exact idea. He was a great violinist. He'd spent thousands of hours practicing. But when he went into auditions, he would get that slight bit of nervousness. And he never had a meltdown or anything, but it would just subtract and chip away at how well he would play. And he was determined to find ways to help other musicians avoid that. So he teaches a course on it at Juilliard now. Mm. So let's get into another specific pre-performance ritual that kind of became legend if you're a sports person. Baseball player Wade Boggs, famous for a pretty crazy set of stuff he had to do before each game. Can you kind of give us that? Yeah, he had his base, his rituals were time based. You know, he had to do he had to uh, hit so many uh, ground had to hit so many grounders. He had to run sprints at a certain time before the game. He would eat chicken before every game. He would carve things in the dirt with his baseball bat before every at bat. Those are you know there are pre performance rituals that are closely related to what you're doing. So if a gymnast has a certain way that he puts chalk on his hands before an event, you know that has some rational relationship with putting your hands on the high bar. Uh, Wade Boggs is clearly out into the superstition realm. Uh, There's no reason why carving things in the dirt should work, but he's convinced himself that it does, and it makes him more confident, so it probably does help him. That's how superstitions work. But if, if, you know, Wade Boggs didn't hit 1,000, wasn't batting 1,000, no one does, how do people reconcile their performance rituals or their superstitions when their performance isn't perfect? Do they say to themselves it's the fault of the ritual or the performance? So you do see... uh, people who will vary their rituals based on performance. So there's a chapter in the book on uh, motivational music, and I spent time at Fenway Park with the DJ that selects all the songs that you hear during the game, and he helps the players with what they call their walk-up songs, the songs that they hear as they walk up to the plate. And so one of the things that David Ortiz, the Red Sox batter, used to do 
was he would have the same walk-up song if he got a hit, but if he didn't get a hit, then he'd have the DJ switch the song for the next one. So people do vary their rituals and their kind of routines based on whether they've had success or failure the last time around. You mentioned superstitions, um, and that's, you know, wearing, wearing your mother's wedding dress or the day will be a disaster, writing with their lucky pen. As you say in the book, careers with high superstitions, they're athletes, actors, gamblers, miners, sailors... To me, I look at that list and see that their commonality is is risk-taking. You can prepare, but there's a significant portion of your success that's going to be out of your control. What do you think those particular professions have in common? Yeah, no question. Those are uh, high-stakes professions where your success or failure is really obvious. Um, But part of the argument in this book is that, you know, the economy is not shifting in ways that there are more sailors or miners than there used to be. But it is shifting in ways where... Our days are less routine than they used to be. We're doing more projects. Um, We're moving between jobs more often. Uh, And in those kinds of lines of work, there are days on the calendar that are more important than others. You know, in a lot of jobs now, there's a key meeting in a month where you have to present, and how well you do really does have a bearing on your future. And so there's more use cases for this. You know, if you, it's, our days are not the same every day, and there are events in our professional lives that we can get psyched up for. We're speaking with Daniel McGinn. He's a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, author of Psyched Up, The Science Behind Mental Preparation and How It Can Help Us Succeed. You're listening to Get Connected on 106.7 Light FM. I'm Nina Del Rio. Pep Talks, one of the other um, areas you studied for salespeople, for teams, if you know your numbers and you com- your competitors, why do pep talks enter the equation? So there are some people who think that they're not important, both in sports and in business. So Bill Belichick up here in New England, um, he's a very rational, logical, strategic-minded coach. He doesn't give a lot of pep talks. Um, but there are others that think that emotions do matter and that if you can find the right words to tap into the, that team to get them to push just a little bit harder, whether it's a sales context or a military setting, that it's going to have a difference. And there's research on what notes you need to hit in an effective pep talk. Generally, you have to figure out in advance how much you want to go go into the specifics of the strategy, the direction, the informational part of the talk versus how much you want to try to empathize with people and how much of it you're trying to create meaning to make the task feel more important in the scheme of things. Those are the three elements that typically a good pep talk has. And when you spoke with people, did you find some universal keywords that make more of an impact than others? Well, it it can be it, it's different based on what the challenge sure. is, and it's also different based on the professionalism and the inherent motivation. So here's an example. So Stanley McChrystal, the general who led our efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, in the last war, uh, he talked about how with Navy SEALs or other special forces uh, operatives, he didn't need to give much of a pep talk because they've been doing this a long time. They joined up, you know, you don't get into those forces by accident. They're highly motivated, you know, it's intrinsic to them. He didn't need to say a whole lot to them. But he said when he was leading a group of, you know, 21-year-old new recruits who'd never been in battle before, in that case, he would give a, absolutely give a pep talk because he needed to calm them. He needed to make them optimistic. He needed to play on their emotions more because they didn't have the same sense of motivation and they didn't have the same level of experience. So that's one factor you need to think about when you're calibrating your pep talks. Another pep talk you sort of take a look at in the book is that win one for the Gipper speech, you know, do it for your dying teammate or your just died teammate, I think, in that case. Um how do, how do heartfelt speeches work, or do they work better than aggressive ones? So 
So Newt Rockne was legendary for his use of pep talks. I mean, and uh, in the in the book, I cover some of the techniques he used. Um, he's a coach who definitely believed that emotions matter, and he would plot out devices uh, like the Gipper speech in advance that he'd have in his toolkit. Um, again, there are managers who think that that works. There are managers who doesn't. But one of the people I interviewed in the book is Bill Campbell, who was a former football coach who went on to Silicon Valley and became a mentor to people like Steve Jobs and to the founders of Google. And one of the things he talked about is the fact that many of these tech leaders today, they didn't play sports growing up. They had their nose in a computer screen from the time they were 12 or 13. And he's really had to work with them to develop a language, to develop the kinds of rhetoric that you use to get people emotionally invested because it doesn't naturally come to some people. Mm. How many times can you hear a pep talk before a game or a pitch and you just stop hearing or responding to it? You think about, especially sports, how many different versions of that speech does a coach have to have? When does the trick stop working? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. Um, And uh, so one of the things that coaches will sometimes do is bring in an outside voice, uh, somebody who's new and different, who brings some novelty and perspective. So for instance, I'm up in Boston during the Celtics playoff run. uh, You know, Brad Stevens, the coach for the Celtics, was giving pep talks. But at one point, Kevin Garnett, who's a a famous retired Celtics player, left an inspirational voicemail for one of the players. So he brought that voicemail in and he played it for the team. And that was a recognition that, you know, after an entire NBA season, these guys might be a little bit tired of hearing from me over and over. I'm going to mix it up a little bit. So good leaders find ways to essentially outsource some of their pep talks. And that was an example of how to do that. Mm. Trash talking. You think about it in sports, but also maybe in sales or something like that. How does trash talking work for the person doing it? And how does it work on the receiver? Is it really impactful on the receiver, too? So the intention with trash talk is to basically just jostle your opponent, distract them, push them off balance, interfere with their concentration. Um, There's survey research that suggests that under the right circumstances, it does work. Um, And I've actually read experimental research. A researcher did a dissertation where he had two sets of people playing video games, and one set of people was allowed to trash talk, and one set was not allowed to trash talk. And generally, the trash talk did help people feel more confident, more powerful. Um, So it's not necessarily always the best sportsmanship, and, you know, we probably don't want our kids doing it to each other on the Little League field, um, but there is some evidence that it can work. Let's move on to a performance playlist. You know, drums of war have been motivating people for forever. Now we create our own. Anybody at the gym has, you know, Eye of the Tiger on their headphones. We actually play that song on our station, and you actually spoke to the guy who wrote it. It was a fascinating uh, couple of hours I spent with him. He lives outside of Chicago. Uh, he He's in his 60s now, but he dyes his hair purple. He wears mm-hmm. uh, custom-made leather clothing. He lives in a house with 182 guitars in its own recording studio, and it's mostly because of this one song that he and another guy wrote in a couple of afternoons back in the early 80s for the third Rocky movie. And it's interesting. The, one of the questions about motivational music is, is it the way the song sounds, if you've never heard it before, it's just inherent to the musicality, or is it the emotional connection? Do we think that Eye of the Tiger is motivational because we all remember Rocky Three and the training montages and it just gets the adrenaline flowing? He points out that that song has been downloaded for iTunes six million times, and a lot of the people downloading it today probably never saw Rocky Three. So he argues convincingly that it's it's a function of the way the song works, and it's not just because we remember the movie. Mm. In music in general, what's the advantage of music over something like a pep talk? 
Well, it's just a different tool. Certain people, and you know, it's um, you can use that tool. You can use music by yourself with your headphones. It's not going to be obtrusive. Um, you know, the Red Sox and the Patriots listen to music when they're coming out onto the field. They're, you know, it's a different set of tools. You know, a pep talk requires that you have a leader who's willing to give one, who's good at giving it. It requires that you um, believe in the leader and are willing to, you know, pay attention to him. Um, so I think there's a wide variety of tools people can use to get psyched up. And I think the trick is for each individual to figure out what works for them. I think music also, you know, you can use it while you're doing whatever it is, perhaps. In acting, teachers, you know, will tell you the trick is to be mentally prepared. And then once you step on the stage, you let it you let it fall away. You stay out of your head and kind of stay connected to your partner or what you're doing. Did you talk to people about how to stay on that focus once the work has begun? Yeah, I think, um, again, I can't underestimate the extent to which practice is important. None of these things are a substitute for practice. If you get on the stage and you're a little bit shaky on your lines because you didn't practice them enough, well, there's no mental trick that's mm-hmm. going to help you in that situation. Um, but you, if you increase your confidence, if you learn not to be distracted when something goes wrong, um, for instance, that Juilliard class I was telling you about, one of the things they do there is they give the kids a final exam and they tell them exactly how the audition is going to f- unfold. They have to go audition before these judges. And they let them expect a series of events, but then on that day, they intentionally make everything go wrong. The practice room is really noisy. The um, the piano has ping pong balls in it, so it sounds really funny. They intentionally put these obstacles up to flummox them, and if you've prepared, you'll be a little bit less distracted than the other person. It'll help you in that situation. Did you talk to anyone about affirmations or mental imagery? There are in all sorts of self-help books. Anybody at the top of their field who uses them? Sure. I think um, having sort of a mantra or a set of self-talk affirmations, um, whether it's just something you quietly say to yourself, or, you know, I've met athletes that have professionally narrated audio tracks with, you know, music and voiceovers. It's almost like a greatest hits highlight reel, recalling their best moments. Um, uh, As simple as sort of listening to a time when you did something well. Doing something that can increase your level of confidence uh, is only going to put you in a better position to perform. So to sum up, when we're in a situation, we're closing a sale, asking for a raise, facing a rival, those last few minutes, how do we kind of keep out of our own way? I think the same way that when you watch the Olympics, you see that the athletes have something that they do, sort of a set sequence. Every person who works in one of these high-performance kind of jobs or whose kids are going through these kind of high-performance events, it can be helpful to figure out what works for you and to come up with that sequence and to have it in your toolkit as one more thing that can increase the odds that you'll do well. Daniel McGinn is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review and the author of Psyched Up, The Science Behind Mental Preparation and How It Can Help Us Succeed. Thanks for joining us on Get Connected. Thank you. This has been Get Connected with Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it, visit our website for downloads and podcasts at 1067lightfm.com. Thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.